Join me in a word of prayer before we begin. God, we give you thanks today for your word, for your holy scriptures. And we thank you for what the teachings of Jesus and the things he had to share about your kingdom. Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to what you are doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning and happy blessed feast of the Super Bowl. All right, Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I'm, I'm not really a big football person, but somehow or another, I got suckered in this year to joining a 16-year-long-running dynasty fantasy football thing that was happening. I had some friends who said, there's this team, and we can't find someone to replace it, and we just want you to hang out with us, and you may not be good at football, which might be to our advantage, but... Here you go. So I joined this thing, and so I've been paying more attention to football than I probably ever have. Um, but I think for many people, right, there's the, the big game today. For some people, this is like one of the most exciting and eagerly anticipated days of the year. And I think for most people, though, right, who either aren't living in Cincinnati or, or Los Angeles, those are the, where the two teams are from if you haven't been paying attention, um, right? we're at least hoping at minimum for an entertaining and fair game, right? It's a, a good entertaining spectacle of athleticism and, and all of that on the field. And so it got me into thinking and wondering about where there have been like some really controversial moments in Super Bowl history. So I kind of got on this like rabbit trail of all of this, and one of the things I discovered is that the very first Super Bowl, Super Bowl number one, they were cutting to an interview, um, television interview, right before the halftime kickoff was supposed to resume play for the second half. And I guess, you know, the first time they were broadcasting the Super Bowl, so they didn't have it all figured out, and so they actually missed the kickoff because they didn't time it right. So what they ended up doing was the referee on the field didn't know what to do, so he blew the ball dead, and he made them kick off again and restart the whole thing. So can, can you imagine if that would have happened now, the, the controversy that would have happened if they said, eh, that play just... It, it didn't happen because we didn't televise it, right? It didn't count and started again. And so I was looking up all these different instances in Super Bowl history where people felt like there were controversial things that happened. And right, um, some of these may not stick out to some of you, but if you were the fan of the team, right, that got wronged where the play didn't go your way, right, this is like the thing that you talk about like the rest of your life, right? If only this had happened, right, then, then we would have won and been champions. So um, there was something about the 2006 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 40, between the Steelers and the Seahawks. Some of you can remember back that far. Some of you I can see are just like, yeah, I know that one. Well, there was this like, it wasn't even just like one big thing happened. There were a number of calls that happened in the game, so much so that actually after the fact, the head official that day, he in an interview he gave subsequently years later, he even said like, hey, we messed up. Like, we've watched it back and like, we know we messed up. Like, sorry, Seattle fans who, who lost the Super Bowl. And one of them was that Ben Roethlisberger had stretched out to try to get a touchdown at the end of the first half and had been called a touchdown on the field. But on review and replay, it was impossible to tell, right? And this is the rules of getting a touchdown is the ball has to cross the plane of the line. 
for, to mark a touchdown, and they could not make a ruling. It was like so like right there on the field that they couldn't say it was or it wasn't a touchdown, and that's a pretty big deal, right? A, a seven-point score, and so that was one of the many things that went wrong, and it made me just think about this whole idea, right, that there are going to be, this evening, there are going to be tons of people all across the country who, whose well-being that night, right, depends on perhaps inches or seconds of some play that happens. And so, this is maybe a silly analogy, but it got me thinking that, right, there are also going to be many people who are going to be praying for their team to win, or the other team to lose, maybe, as well. And I say all that and make this silly illustration and analogy because I think it, it does a good job of showing us that right, how we value winning and losing in life, right, of success and being associated with success and or failure. And I think that stands in, in stark contrast with especially our gospel passage this morning, right? Jesus' words are kind of jarring. They're a little disorienting. Jesus says, when you think about being blessed, here's what blessing looks like, right? What does he say? Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who are weeping, who are being persecuted for my name's sake. And that's kind of shocking, right? We, we kind of don't really know what to do with that. These are hardly the life circumstances which we would ask for ourselves. But Jesus says, when you're in the midst of this, you're blessed. And as I was thinking about that this week, I realized that the way we understand that is so colored by worldly measures of success and or failure, right? That we have a hard time hearing Jesus' words here. And then, you know, we, we follow a lectionary, right? So there are other texts selected. And one of the texts that was selected this week is 1 Corinthians 15. And as I read 1 Corinthians 15, I felt like I had a little bit of a light bulb go off. That 1 Corinthians 15 and what Paul has to say about the resurrection actually helped me to better understand what Jesus is saying about blessing in Luke chapter 6. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. I want to look first at 1 Corinthians 15 and resurrection and see what is Paul saying here, because I think it will help us understand what Jesus is talking about with blessing. So I think the truth and the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus, this is what I want us to hear this morning. The truth about Jesus' resurrection, it fundamentally changes and alters the way we see the world. That's what Paul is telling us. And if we miss that, we've maybe missed God in some ways. Without the resurrection, the world that Jesus describes in, in our gospel, it sounds out of touch with how we experience the world, right? It doesn't seem like it matches up. How could you say this, Jesus? This isn't how we see blessing. But in the resurrection, Jesus is doing something new. He's healing the brokenness that we see in the world, the brokenness that we see in poverty, in hunger, in weeping, in persecution, right? The power of the resurrection, it changes our perception 
of how God sees the brokenness around us, and we enter into it in a different way. So that's what I want to explore this morning. Um, We're going to start, like I mentioned, with Paul. So the portion of 1 Corinthians 15 that we read last week, Paul talks about how Jesus has been resurrected, and it's not just his closest disciples who saw this. He actually says there were over 500 people who in some way, shape, or form met the resurrected Jesus in between the time that he was resurrected from the dead on Easter Sunday and when he ascended um, 40 days later. And so with all this happening, you know, he, Paul is sharing that this isn't just something that Paul thinks happened, right? He's like, there's all these witnesses out there, right? Don't just talk to me. Don't just talk to the disciples. Talk to all, if you can track down all 500 of these people, they'll tell you the same thing, this truth about Jesus being resurrected to the dead. Because, right, it's unbelievable. It sounds impossible. It seems too good to be true. But despite all of this, right, despite this testimony, there were still some in the Corinthian church who were questioning Right? And I think we can kind of understand to some degree, how can God raise someone from the dead? That just doesn't make sense. Right? That doesn't fit with the way we see and view the world. And so if you're acquainted with Paul's writings at all, you might notice that Paul is not really one to shy away from a bold statement or a place of controversy, right? Paul kind of just gets after it. Um, I like to think that if Paul was alive today, his preferred social media platform would be Twitter, right? He's just going to get in there and, and stir some things up. He's going to say something, and, and people are going to be retweeting it and all this stuff, right? Um, and I think this chapter is actually one of the greatest chapters that Paul has written in all the letters he's written, and he's write, written right, the majority of the letters in the New Testament. This is kind of like the best of the best, the greatest hits, if you will. And again, right, Paul isn't holding back here. If we look at this a little bit more closely, right, and you have to track this, it might have been hard to read. Brooke did a great job of reading, but you have to follow Paul's train of logic, right? Because here's what he's saying. Paul's saying, okay, follow me on this. If you don't think that God can raise people from the dead, here's the ramifications of that. And I'm going to walk you through it. So let's, let's follow this back. So this is what Paul says. He basically says, well, Corinthians, if you're unsure if Jesus was raised from the dead, verses 14 and 15, well, then that means that, you know, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, I'm preaching lies and your faith is in vain. You're believing a lie. How gullible and silly of you, right? But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's pressing this further and further. He says, not only if Christ wasn't raised, are we gullible and am I a liar and are you believing a lie? More importantly, we're still in our sins, right? Now, I'm sure Paul didn't want to be called a liar, but the bigger issue at hand, right, is for all humanity, if Jesus' death for our sins and the new life we receive in the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection, if that doesn't happen, we're powerless, right? We're stuck in all these ways of brokenness and death all around us. Jesus is just another dead rabbi and nothing more. And maybe even more than that, right? If you follow this idea further and further, then we should call into question the things that Jesus taught. 
Because everything that Jesus taught about God, about the world, about himself, right? We need to think about the way Jesus understood himself, right? Is he was bringing God's kingdom. And one of the things he promised was that he would raise himself from the dead. And so if Jesus didn't do that, what else can we believe about what he said, right? Are we, are we following Paul's logical train here? And this is important, right? Because he says, if we've staked our lives on this, then Paul says, actually, we should be the most pitied, right? We bought into this lie. Big bummer. If none of this is true, go home and get your stuff ready for Super Bowl Sunday. Get your meal together, right? Why are you here? if this isn't the truth about the world. And thankfully, though, the lectionary doesn't end at verse 19, right? It includes verse 20. Because that's not the truth, right? The truth is Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. That is true. And not only has Jesus been resurrected from the dead, but Paul says he is the first fruits of what is to come of what God is bringing and ushering into this world. So first fruits, that's maybe a slightly unfamiliar term. It's got some connections back into the Old Testament. You can look that up for yourself. I'm not going to go there. But for those of you who maybe have like an agricultural or farming background, right, you know what first fruits are. They're the, they're the beginning of the new harvest, right? And if you've got good first fruits, it stands to reason that you're going to have a good harvest. Another way for us to think about this is maybe like a down payment, right? It's a guarantee that this isn't just the beginning, but that there's more to come in the future. So isn't that really interesting? Paul is essentially saying that Jesus' resurrection is a down payment on the kingdom of God in our midst. And so if we track this further, Right? If we think about this, and this is where I want to say that the resurrection gives us a new and different way of seeing what the world is like, then actually the resurrection is not just a down payment on the kingdom of God, but it's actually a vindication of everything that Jesus ever taught and said and the miracles that he did and the ways that he pointed to God. Right? Because if Jesus is right on this thing, then he's surely got to be right on that thing and all that other stuff too. And that's where I think looking at 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a helpful way of then coming back and understanding what's happening in Luke chapter 6. Um, I wanted to share this quote from an Anglican priest and biblical scholar and also a friend. His name is Esau Macaulay. I've really um, benefited from, from Esau's writings and teachings and part of it is thinking about this month being February and Black History Month. I think Esau does a really good job of sharing how the African-American interpretation of Scripture, that biblical interpretation tradition, has helped to emphasize things like hope in the midst of suffering and things like that. So this is what actually doc, the Reverend Dr. McCauley says about this passage in his book. He says, if Christianity is mere method, a way of approaching reality, then it is inadequate. But if Christ is risen, trampling down death by death, then the world is a different place, even when I do not experience it as such. Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is the wistful dream of a pious fool. 
but I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. Right? This is that reframing of reality that resurrection and the kingdom of God does. Right? That we actually don't take the world as we experience it for the ultimate truth about life. We have to see things from God's perspective. And so from there, I want to come back to the Beatitudes, right? Let me read those again briefly. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. What is Jesus getting at here? How can he call that blessed? I think the fundamental truth that Jesus is trying to share with all of us, right, all of his followers, is he's saying that, right, the world looks at your situation in life and is going to make a judgment about who you are, about what you're worth, about all of those things, right? If you're poor, why are you poor? What's wrong with you, right? Even thinking from the perspectives of someone who's experiencing poverty or is maybe falling on hard times, right? Like, why can't I get it together or why can't I provide myself and some of the shame that fits into that? And then the kingdom of God, right, comes in with this world-shattering message of saying, that's not the most important thing about who you are, right? That your closeness to God has nothing to do with your circumstances in life. But actually the opposite, right? This is the opposite wisdom that the resurrection shows us, that God can be close to you despite the difficulty and the challenges you might feel in life. Whether you're, you know, whether you're, on, whether you're hard on your means at the time, right? Whether you're hungry, whether you're weeping, there's tragedy and grieving in your life. The kingdom of God says, God... You are blessed because God can be near to you in this moment despite all that stuff, right? That's not something that takes you away from God. That actually draws God closer to you in a a way. And so here's what's really interesting about this passage too is you've got these Beatitudes, right? um, The Beatitudes pop up in another place in Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, but you've got eight Beatitudes, not four. And there's a a unique thing in this teaching that Jesus does in Luke where he's paired the four Beatitudes with four complementary woes. The woes we can think of as like warnings, right? So let me read those briefly. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So what's, what's happening here? I think, right, this is also a little bit confusing, and I think we need to wrestle with this a little bit. And again, I think what Jesus says about the kingdom of God also fits this scenario, is that you are not necessarily more blessed because you are rich, or you have wealth, or you have means. God is not favoring you. And Jesus says, right, not only that, but watch out if you become too reliant upon yourself and your own means of success, right? 
So Jesus isn't saying that wealth and riches in and of themselves are bad and are wrong, but if we elevate those above God and above the things in God's kingdom, right, we get things out of whack and out of balance, right? I'm thinking about a a really famous story that's in just Luke's gospel, but there's a story actually of the restoration of a rich person, right? This is a Bible story we all know, Zacchaeus, right? The, The wee little man, the tax collector, who's gone and who's cheated so many people, but he has this encounter with Jesus. He sees a different way of living in the world, and what does he do? He repents. He realizes, I've wronged these people to gain this wealth, to chase after this thing, and I'm going to repay them back because God's given me a different way of valuing myself, valuing other people, and seeing the kingdom of God. And I think that's helpful for us, right? Because that's an example of saying, that, you know, the, the kingdom of God is there for the rich too, but you've got to have the right attitude about it. You've got to have the right posture before God with the things that we have, right? Same for those who are full or, or now, right? You shall be hungry. Again, saying that, you know, you might have things now, but what's going to happen if and when that stuff does run out? Um, woe to you who laugh now. Laugh is not a great translation of that word. Um, it's more like condescending mocking, right? Someone who's like thinking better of themselves because of their position in life versus another person, right? Jesus is saying, if that's your attitude, watch out, right? Because what's going to happen when you're in the place of grieving and weeping, right? So I say all this because I think it's also helpful for us to remember that Jesus is not necessarily saying it's better for you to be poor and hungry, right? He's actually exploding these categories by which we might sort ourselves, by, by, you know, to use Super Bowl terms, right, between winners and losers. There's not winners and losers in God's kingdom because there's enough for everybody, whatever your situation in life might be, right? These are promises to those who are suffering in this world, that even in the midst of your suffering, right, God sees you, God loves you, and God wants to transform your existence. God wants to see you thrive. And there's also a warning, right? Jesus is warning those who are listening to him, who want to follow him, who says, right, they need to live their lives with attention and generosity towards those who might have less than them, for whatever reason, to not judge them as such, but to love them the way that God loves them. Um, I was talking some of the things in, in the sermon through with, with Hillary this week, and um, she, I'm, and I'm totally giving her credit for this because this is not my illustration, but it's, it's hers that she helped me to see. She gave me the eyes to see. But um, she helped me to learn about a community in a, actually here in our home state of Alabama. Are some of you familiar with G's Bend and some of the, the women up there who make these magnificent quilts. Look them up on another time. Their, their quilts are amazing. But so G's Bend, it's now called, I think the official name for the community is called Boykin. It's in Wilcox. So not too, too far from here in, in the western part of Alabama. Uh, most of the folks who live in G's Bend are descendants of enslaved people. They purchased their freedom eventually over time once they were emancipated and kept land and struggled to, to survive, right? If any of you have driven up that way, right, there's not a lot of thriving commerce 
in the area, but despite the difficulties of the lives that they've lived and the suffering and the pains and the hardships that have been there, they've been able to produce these like world-renowned, amazing works of art and beauty. And what's interesting about these quilts is they're not cookie-cutter quilts, and by that I mean, right, there's not this, like, they're, they're not patterns they're following. They're not very precise, but they're, they've been made over time, and it's made out of, in some ways, it was made out of necessity. A lot of these quilts were made because they were cold at night, and they just needed to keep warm, and they used what they had in front of them. A lot of times it was workwear, right? And if any of you who sew or anything like that or quilt, right, you're probably not using denim as your, like, go-to pattern, right? It's hard to work with, but that's what they had. And, you know, stuff that may be worn out a little bit, they wanted to reuse it and repurpose it. They didn't want anything to go to waste. And even in the midst of this, of the difficulties of life, this stunning beauty arose. Um, there's a well-known quilter in their community. Her name is Mary Lee Bendolph. And, um, I was reading an interview with her, and this is a quote that she said that stuck out to me. She said, the, quotes, they, the quilts, they remind you of where you have been and where the Lord has brought you from. Right? It's a reminder that God sees us outside of our circumstances, and he's with us. And he carries us through, right? It's this beautiful thing of hope and beauty in the midst of the challenges of life. Right? God is in the business of making new life and beauty even out of the difficulties that we might encounter, right? Because that beauty and that healing, it's, it's a testimony, right? It's a signpost. It's the first fruits. It's the down, it's the down payment on the kingdom that God is after. But we can only see this, right, if we have eyes that can see things the way that God sees them, right? If we can see ourselves this way, if we can see one another this way, and I think that's what Jesus is pointing us to in this passage. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.